Holy Spirit, strengthen us to give generously until there are no needy among us. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a red one that looks just like this. Uh, Acts 2 is going to be on page 968. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to use this as your own. If you do own a Bible, um, you guys know there's uh, passages about stealing, so don't take this. Um, (laughs) That would be the ultimate irony. But um, yeah, Acts 2, we're going to be reading verses 42 to 47. I'll give you a sec to get there. Hear these words. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. I just want to invite you as we pray just to take a deep breath in and be reminded that your heavenly Father, if you're a follower of Jesus, desires to speak to you. Let's take a deep breath in and out and be reminded he's with us, he's for us, his spirit is here with us. So, Father, we uh, just ask that you would uh, speak to us as your people God, do what we cannot do, uh, open up our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our souls to receive this living word. God, we thank you that these words are not just words and sentences and paragraphs strewn together to give us historical data points about some galaxy far, far away where you worked at one time. But God, these are living words that are intended to transform us right here and now as we listen, as we uh, respond God, you give the gift of faith, you give us your grace and mercy, and so we ask that you would do that again, do that miraculous thing that only your spirit can do. And so we wait with eager anticipation on you to move and to work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you grow up with uh, a mother who is an English teacher, um, you learn to love literature. I think I've shared this with you guys uh, before. Every night, a rule of my house was I had to spend the last 30 to 45 minutes of my conscious hours reading a book, whether I liked it or not. And to be honest, I didn't like it. I didn't like to read uh, so much as a kid, but when you form the habit, you start to like things that you don't uh, initially like. And so for whatever reason, I was drawn to uh, fiction, and particularly dark fiction. So that would be like Stephen King. Uh, The darker, the better. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever read any Stephen King. It, It can get really dark. Um, and there was just something in me drawn to that. As I got older, I, rec- I realized it's actually fiction that I like. I love the world of imagination. I love being able to go into places. The great thing about fiction is you can go places you could never go within the limitations of your own upbringing, right? Like we didn't have the money to travel into the money. To- and, I can, and I can go uh, all over the place into realms of, uh, that don't even exist. And I can, I, can, I can have my imagination expanded. I love uh, reading. And as I've gotten older, um, going back even and reading works of fiction, um, you know, you, you, you learn some really great things about reality. I, I read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky just recently as a 41-year-old. I know some of you guys read that in college or maybe as a kid. Um, and and to, to see, uh, spoiler, and it's like a really old novel, but like, you know, Raskolnikov at the end, like that redemption that comes through uh, his relationship with Sonia, it, like 
It's just a mind, and then there's the mind-bending prophecy at the end of Crime and Punishment, where he predicts coronavirus in 1865. If you guys have not read the last page of Crime and Punishment, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, you need to do yourself a favor and just do it. It's, it's really crazy, but it's a beautiful book, and, and, and he has that gift uh, of stirring up our imagination. Um, I love like uh, any, any sort, I mean, uh, another great one that I read a couple years ago, Silence, Sushaka Endo's book that became the movie uh, that Martin Scorsese put out. Um, it's, it's a really moving account of uh, Jesuit priests who were uh, essentially killed in Japan. And, and again, all the, like the injustice of some of the things that Christians did, um, but the redemptive narrative and the redemptive arc in that and seeing how Christianity took root in Japan uh, and, and really began to flourish over centuries. Uh, those movies, just that, those books, those pieces of fiction, they stir those things up. Um, that's what good fiction does. Um, I think of G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy, he talks about uh, the role of fiction. Because I know some, like some of you grew up in Christian families where like fiction wasn't allowed. You couldn't read Harry Potter. Uh, you know, you couldn't read any sort of like imagination pieces or whatever. This like propaganda uh, of secularism. Um, I know I'm talking to a young crowd where it's like, what are you talking about? Like Harry Potter, like that's, that's the thing. Um, but here's what Chesterton says about fiction. He says, good fiction accustoms people to the idea that these limitless terrors, so he's talking about kind of the injustice and the brokenness in our world, these limitless terrors have a limit, that these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God, and that there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. It, it, it's like Lewis talked about this disenchanted world that we live in, right? And he says it's easy for us to look out at the world and to see all the evil in the world and to assume that's what's true and what's real, and, and he says what good literature does, what good fiction does, it's like a smelling salt. It actually reminds you there is something true and real, and it breaks that spell. He called it the deeper magic. It's the deeper magic that kind of breaks the spell and reminds us that these longings that we have for love and beauty and truth and goodness are actually true, and that these things are actually the distortion, not the other way around. And that's what Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, great fiction, uh, talks about the idea of eucatastrophe right? That, that Christianity is the myth that's come true. It's the, it's, the, it's the fantasy, the fairy tale that's actually come true and is ultimate reality. And so um, I say all that as a setup to just this text, because I, I, this is like the pastor's like go-to text on community. We've preached on this text. We're working through the book of Acts, so we're just, we're just here. I didn't pick this because I didn't have time to study this week. Uh, I love this passage. I've preached it five or six times. But when I read this passage, Miles and I were talking about this in a preaching team this week, like you read this passage and you hear these words, and I know for like there's just deep longings, deep aches that get stirred up when I read a passage like this for, oh, I wish the church was like this. And then immediately it's just like all the disappointment and all the disillusionment and all the cynicism also starts to, to like leak out of my soul when I read this passage. You're like, this is not my experience in Christian community. Like, this is not it. And so uh, this is not fiction. This is actually a true story. But it's, it's one of those things that we need this kind of imagination, right? And this doesn't last long, right? Like, it only lasts a couple chapters, a couple weeks. Like, it starts to fall apart quickly. It's like the new car smell. It's, the new car smell is right here in Acts 2. And it starts to get junked up. Like, you know, if you have kids, you know, it's like the cheeseburgers under the sea and there's ketchup everywhere. It's not going to last very long, okay? But we need this imagination and we need to have this reality stirred up to remind us that this is the possibility that's offered to us in community especially with what we've lived the last 18, 24 months. We need this reminder that this is, this is what we're invited into. This is what the Holy Spirit's doing. I mean, I find it super interesting in terms of the context here. 
again, the Holy Spirit's just been poured out, a massive amount of people, thousands of people who are Jews, scattered across their diaspora Jews, they're scattered across the empire, coming from different cultures and different ethnic and racial backgrounds, all gathered together, and 3,000 of them are, 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 they come into relationship with Jesus, they're saved, they're added to the church, and I find it super instructive what the Spirit does. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is not to launch a nonprofit. He, he doesn't start a social media campaign, right? He's the spirit. He could have, he could have started Twitter back right here. Like, he, he didn't do it. He, he, he doesn't initiate some big praise and worship revival tour. Notice the power of Pentecost is harnessed to draw people together into community. This community becomes the incubator for the things that are going to eventually transform the Roman Empire, the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he places them into this new social reality, into what one theologian calls a contrast society, so they can begin to learn to live the way of Jesus together in a way that's going to lead to, I mean, literally, this is so compelling, verse 47, every day God adds to their number people being saved. Like, they didn't have to make things happen. They didn't have to market this. There was no branding strategy or marketing campaign. It was happening organically because this community was so compelling. And that's what we want. To say yes to Jesus, we see in Acts 2, is to say yes to his community. To say yes to Jesus is both a yes and a no. It's a no to a life of isolation and privatized spirituality. And it's a yes to being a part of what Dr. King used to call the beloved community. That's what we're invited to experience. And what, this is such a beautiful passage. This is one of the few passages in the book of Acts. It's called a summary passage. It's one of the few passages in the book of Acts where Luke pulls back the curtain and gives us a window into the interior life of the church, the soul of the church. What was it actually like to be a part of this early community? And what we see is, I think, a community that we all long for. I think we see a very compelling community, a beautiful vision of a community that we long to experience as human beings. Like we want this behind every coffee shop, behind every restaurant, behind every garage. You know, like this is what we're longing for. But it's so radically different than how we tend to think about and practice community. I find that there's like a generational, um, almost obsession with community. So I'm 41. I don't know. Some people say I'm Gen X. Some people say I'm millennial. I, I'm in like this weird generational no man's land cohort. I identify more as a millennial because I love community. I like to think about this. I know uh, from my parents' generation, they didn't talk as much about community as about like church and religion and institutions and things like that. But um, it's funny to me how often like we talk about in our generation community and yet how little we actually know how to experience that kind of community. Like we have this deep hunger for it and yet this deep disappointment with what it actually is, right? And we live in this moment where so much of our vision for community is shaped by consumerism, right? Um, a couple of decades ago, a guy named uh, Robert Belay, who's a sociologist, wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And in this book, he talks about how in a consumer society like America, uh, community has been replaced by these groupings of people, individuals, into what he calls lifestyle enclaves, right? Lifestyle enclave is a ba basically what he's saying is we tend to gather with people who look like us, so think marketing, marketing segmentation. We tend to segment ourselves, and he, and he says when we segment ourselves, we come together to celebrate what he calls the narcissism of similarity. 
I want to be with people who think like me, talk like me, look like me, share my prejudices, my assumptions, my bias. And again, this is not all bad, right? Like this is, this is part of being a family, it's part of being a part of a country. Like you tend to share these, these group dynamics, right? It's not all bad. But when it's, when it's pushed into overdrive, it can create um, this, this, this bad thing. And so he says, in this narcissism of similarity, uh, we tend to segment based on what he calls leisure and consumption, like how we play and what we buy tends to form our primary uh, sociological relational groupings, right? And over time, that, that uh, means that we tend to kind of get into these little enclaves of similarity. Um, recently, there was a study done by Harvard Divinity School, actually specifically on millennials. It was the largest study conducted to date on how millennials gather in community. And it's really interesting what they found. The authors found it was called um, Sacred Design was the name of the study, if you want to look it up. Um, but what they noticed is that uh, millennials, and this is no surprise, were leaving the church in droves. But they noticed that as they were leaving the church, their desire and hunger for community and spirituality did not go away. They take that hunger with them, and what they're doing is essentially creating alternatives to the church that fulfill six core needs, community, personal and social transformation, uh, purpose, or finding meaning, creativity, and then accountability, right? That's what they're kind of after. So he gives some, they give some different examples of how, what those alternative communities look like. Um, one of the examples they give is the dinner party, right? The dinner party uh, is actually a movement. It's actually kind of a, a movement. It's built on uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So you come together and you share around really difficult things that are going on in your life around a meal. So you talk about grief. You talk about loss. You talk about death. You talk about racism. You talk about classism. You talk about loneliness, right? Like we talk about these hard things in our lives around a shared meal. And these things are exploding, especially out on the coasts where there's uh, lots and lots uh, of dense uh, populations of lonely, hurting people. These are really kind of taking off. Chicago and, and different places like that, big cities like Indianapolis. Another example uh, was CrossFit, right? The biggest cult, uh, I mean, fitness movement in the world. Uh, you know, a community based on accountability. You know, we gather together and we, we've got CrossFit games now and CrossFit communities. And again, I'm all for CrossFit. It's fine. You can tell I don't do CrossFit, but um, that's a thing that a lot of people are doing. Soul Cycles, another example of that. This is kind of like CrossFit meets empowerment. It's like, you can do it. You're an amazing person. Get on your bike, Peloton. You know, like, you're on this journey and you're the best and all that kind of stuff. Um, then there's, uh, there's what's called, another one's Juniper Path. Uh, and I would say the Juniper Path is this weird, like, Silicon Valley meets um, Buddhism, right? It's like meditation with technology and, like, you know, yoga and all this kind of stuff. Uh, another example is the Sanctuaries. It's based out of D.C. Uh, the Sanctuaries is a multi-spiritual, multi-racial community pursuing spiritual growth and social change via the creative arts. And again, these are all examples of community, but the thread that runs through these communities is that they're an attempt to get at community, but they're essentially consumeristic versions of community. What we've done is turn community into a commodity that can be purchased based around affinity. That's the primary factor. People that are like me, right? People that like the same things that I like, go the same places, have the same hobbies. And again, not all bad, right? Like C.S. Lewis once said, um, the basis of friendship is like you look at another person and you say, oh, you too, right? That's, that's not a bad thing. But when it becomes the driver, we begin to see thin commitments, not thin, thick commitments. We, 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 we have preference-based community 
We have a, a community built around opinions and, and, and just felt needs and really choice. Like, I, I choose to do this because it makes me feel a certain way, which is not bad again, but if I can choose to be in it, I can also choose to get out of it. And we find ourselves, like one person said, like these Velcro communities where I attach myself for a little bit and then I rip off and attach somewhere else and rip off. And, and we do this city after city, church after church, soul cycle after soul cycle. Pastor John Tyson uh, in New York City ex- has experienced this a lot, and uh, he, I came across this paraphrase of Acts 2. This is kind of how he experiences this in New York City, and I thought it was really it's a little cheeky if you're British, uh, kind of funny. Here's what he says about if we were to take Acts 2 and map it onto our current consumer moment. He says this, and they studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectation for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity, but kept all of their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people, and occasionally, someone was randomly saved. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration, but you get the point. This approach to community is not working. Despite our obsession with community, study after study shows that we are lonelier than ever. Despite the fact that we're more connected through social media, every research we have shows us that we are lonely. Loneliness has been called the greatest mental health crisis in America. Great Britain just appointed a minister of loneliness. Think about that. I don't have to tell you that. Like That's your lived experience for many of you. And what we have here is such a different thing in Acts chapter 2. Spirit-empowered community offers something richer, something more meaningful, something more durable than consumer community. The idea here in Acts 2 is a word that's repeated several times in this passage. Notice in verse 42, they devoted themselves to fellowship. There's the word. And then in verse, what we got, 46, every day they devoted themselves And it goes on to describe the things they're devoting themselves to. This word fellowship that's translated here as fellowship is the word quantania. This is the idea of biblical community. It's quantania, right? Quantania can be translated fellowship. It can be translated um, partnership. In the Roman world, it was actually more like a business partnership. You enterprise together with somebody. You got involved in like a family business together. That's the idea of quantania. It's a participation in a common life Right? That's why it's translated common in verse 44. That's the same word. It's actually three times in this passage, fellowship in verse 42, common in 43, and then, uh, yeah, it's, sorry, it's 42 and 43, common and fellowship. It's about this common life that we live together that leads us to all of the things that we see in this passage. It leads us to solidarity. It leads us to to sharing. We have a common participation and a common thing together. Now, what is the common thing that we share as followers of Jesus? It's not leisure. It's not hobby. It's not how much, it shouldn't be how much money we make or the clothes that we wear or our political affiliations. What brings the Jesus community together is Jesus, right? Like that's the thing the majority of us share in common, the essence of Christian community. What makes it different than Soul Cycle and dinner parties and these other things is that we are a community that gathers around Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That is what we share in common. And that should be the greatest and strongest bond that we have 
together that then leads to sharing everything together, right? Right? The most amazing thing about this passage, and people get all tripped up about the um, economic stuff, and we'll talk about that in two weeks. I can't wait to talk about that. Um, they get all tripped up about this. Is this communism or whatever? No, it's all voluntary. People are voluntarily giving up their stuff. They're selling possessions. What's more radical in my mind and more controversial is not that they're giving their money to one another. It's they're giving themselves to one another. Willie Jennings, my favorite commentary in this passage, um, he writes this, a new kind of giving is exposed at this moment. One that binds bodies together as the first reciprocal donation where the followers will give themselves to one another. The possessions follow. What was at stake here was not the giving up of all possessions, but the giving up of each one, one by one as the Spirit gave direction and as the ministry of Jesus demanded. Like when I'm, just think about it, when you're all in with somebody, you have no problem being generous to them, Right? Like, the problem is, where do we draw our circles of who's in our tribe? Like, all the discussion, all the divide over economic injustice really comes down to, do we really love people or not? And who gets to be the recipient of our love? Because where I draw the boundaries wide in terms of who's in my kinship group, who's in my tribe, I have no problem being generous. Where I draw the circle small, then I'm going to have a problem with being generous. And so we see here that this community is giving themselves to one another in the quantity of thick community. So all the things that we see in this passage that we love, right? Like they all flow out of that. We see God's presence in all breaking out, right? Like verse 43, everyone's filled with awe, right? There's this sense of wonder and transcendence in this community. Many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. I mean, can you imagine going to missional community, going to a discipleship group, showing up with other Christians with the expectation that there were going to be miracles and healings? We show up and we're just hoping the coffee's good. We're hoping that like nobody's super awkward, right? Like that's our expectation for community. And yet they show up and there's all, they're experiencing dead people being raised to life. They're experiencing the poor being taken care of. They're experiencing these supernatural signs and wonders. People who can't see are all of a sudden able to see. And this is crazy. There's a relational intimacy and an intensity in this community. Everyone, notice how many times the word all is used this passage. All were doing this. They were all together all the time, right? They couldn't get enough of each other. And I know some of you are introverts, and you're just like, my inner introvert is in distress reading this passage. I do not want that kind of community. But think about it. If you're a minority in a, in a majority culture where your existence is daily threatened by Roman violence, like you want to be together. You want, you have to be together. And that's what we see here, this intensity and intimacy where everyone, everywhere is together all the time. There's economic solidarity, which we talked about. There's corporate worship. They're still going to the temple together, and there's house-to-house worship. There's hospitality, right, which is amazing. Again, another thing we overlook in this passage, if you can get people from different cultures to agree on the menu, you have a Christian revival. Like, food is always central to anything that's going on in the New Testament because food is about culture. And all of a sudden, they're opening up their homes and they're sharing a meal together. And all, there's, there's joy and humility and there's this compelling witness again that leads to salvation. People are being saved. Like, how could they not be swept up into this thing that was so strange, so bizarre, and yet so beautiful, right? Like, what people want to see in the church, and I think especially with the younger generation, we want to see not that just Christianity is true. 
We want to know that it's beautiful and that it's real. We want to feel it in our hearts. We want to see it lived out, not just defended as a bunch of propositional truths. We want to actually see it lived out. And that's the reason that many of us have stopped going to church in the past, because we've seen the hypocrisy. We've seen the abuse. We've seen the corruption. We've seen the opposite of this. And we'll see that in the book of Acts. And yet, people are being saved every day. And it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss the dominant word that forms the foundation for all this community. That's where I just want to spend the rest of our time. It's easy to miss this word that appears twice. I've preached this several times and, and kind of coming back to this again, um, seeing this is like, yes, this is it. This is what we need. This is what we need in this moment right now where community is so hard and so difficult for many of us. I know some of us are like, no, community is awesome. I know for many of us, it's the last thing that you want to do right now in this moment. Here's the word. It shows up in 42 and 46. It's the word devoted. They devoted themselves. Verse 46, they devoted themselves. Chapter one, this is the third time it showed up. They devoted themselves. The word devoted means to remain. It means to persist, to stay with, to be loyal to, to persevere, to endure. It's a word that speaks to intensity, frequency, vulnerability, and I think probably most importantly, resiliency, right? That's how you could translate devotion, resilient commitment. Right? Resilient commitment. I love David Augsburger's definition of Christian community with this frame in mind. He says this, Christian community is a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together into a living network of persons. We recognize authentic community by the visible strands of commitment and concern that enable people to live jointly, corpor corporately, and cooperatively together. It's about commitment, guys. I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. We are committed to each other. Notice they're devoted to a number of things. And again, note the contrast between this and the way we tend to think of community. They're devoted to learning the way of Jesus, right? They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, verse 42, which is just to say, learning the way of Jesus. They approach community with a beginner's mind, not assuming they've got things figured out. The moment we think we have things figured out, we stunt our ability to be in community with other people. They're devoted to unlearning how they've learned family and community before and relearning what community looks like in the way of Jesus. The word disciple, we all know, right? It doesn't mean like a Christian who attends church. The word disciple literally means a learner, a student or an apprentice. They're devoted to quantania, to fellowship, to the common life, to showing up well for each other, to saying, when things get hard, I'm not going to push away from the table. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be here. I'm, I'm committing to show up well for you over and over and over again. And then they're devoted to these practices, the breaking of bread, which most people think is communion. Um, it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. They're committed to, oh, look at all these practices here. This is not just about showing up to community to discuss ideas, 
right? Like, this is not about writing white papers. This is not about meeting for coffee and, and making our, like, observations and opinions known about community. Notice they're doing stuff together. They're, they're learning and submitting themselves to teaching. They're taking the Lord's Supper together. They're praying together. Prayer in the book of Acts is almost always corporate, not individual. They're, they're, they're being generous to one another. They're engaging in hospitality, worshiping together, evangelizing together, right? All of this is the essence of what it means to be devoted. Lewis Smead's one of my favorite authors. If you've done, gone through Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage, which we use for premarital counseling, you probably read this. Uh, he's kind of a um, Lewis Smead's fanatic. He quotes him a bunch of times. But Lewis Smead has this article um, where he talks about how commitment and devotion is really essential it's not just a religious thing, it's actually essential to human flourishing. It's essential to communities being able to thrive. And I just want you to listen. This quote's a little long, but hear this because I think it's so important as we think about the kind of devotion that's needed to get the byproduct, the things that we want, the fruit that we want, will not come unless we understand what it looks like to commit ourselves. Here's what he says. All human community, from the ghetto to the global village, depends on the power of promising where people no longer have the inner daring to make serious promises or the grit to keep them, human community becomes a combat zone of competing self-maximizers. I mean, is that not like our life in Broderpool? <laughs> competing, self-maximizing. We're at sea. Life is all open-ended, loose-jointed, tossed around in the backwash of unpredictability. Where others cannot assume that I will be there for them as promised, I have helped abolish community. When you make a promise, you tie yourself to other persons by the unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people you are stuck with. When everything else tells them they can count on nothing, they count on you. When they have not the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them. And here's the money quote. You have created a sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability, you have made a promise you intend to keep. Like that should be tattooed on our bodies, a jungle of trust. This is what the church is supposed to be, a jungle of trust, a sanctuary, excuse me, a sanctuary. It is a jungle, that, that's Freudian slip. A sanctuary of trust in a jungle of unpredictability. We need that. Now, this is not anything like radical in the sense that they were only doing what Jesus had done for them. This kind of devotion is, the, is what Jesus showed them when they walked with him. They are devoted in the same way that Jesus was devoted to him. God makes a promise in the Old Testament. I'm going to bless and save. I'm going to raise up a people for myself. You will not live under this injustice and with this idolatry and sin forever. And Jesus comes fulfilling the Father's promise, showing God's devotion. He becomes a human being. He gathers together a community and he starts to build these, this web of stubbornly loyal relationships where he sacrifices and he teaches and he lays down his life and he loves and he shares everything he has with this community, even to the point of going to the cross. He, he hangs on the cross as the ultimate symbol of devotion, by the way, to a group of people who all abused him and abandoned him. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he dies, and God raises him from the dead. And the Spirit, when the Spirit comes on this community, he says, hey, as God and Jesus has been devoted to you, you now do that with these new brothers and sisters, most of whom you don't know, 
who've come from all over the Mediterranean, from different cultural backgrounds, who are mostly strangers to you, you're now family. Good luck, work it out with the power of the Spirit. That's what's going on here. And I think that our great disappointment with community is that while we long for this experience, we long for Acts 2, we, we've been formed or deformed in such a way that we lack the basic skills and I think the character, and I'm, I'm speaking to my, about myself, the basic skills and character that makes these kind of resilient commitments possible. Right? I, I don't like to make promises. I don't. I don't like to be committed. I'm a withdrawer just by nature, you know? And so committing myself to people and putting myself out there over and over and over again, you couldn't ask me to do a harder thing. And, I, and I, I'm sure some of you can identify with that. There, there, we all have um, reasons why it's hard for us. I, I, was, I made a list of like 30, 30 reasons why it's hard to be devoted, like these enemies of devotion. I, I, I could just list a couple of the top three that, that come to mind. We don't have a lot of time to get into these. But the top three that come to my mind as I'm experiencing life in community with you guys, I think these are kind of universal things, and in some ways, these are particular to us in our time here. One is hyper-individualism, right? I mean, this is really just selfishness and sin kind of gone viral. David Brooks um, writes a lot about this. Um, he has what's called the, the relational manifesto. He's a New York Times writer. And he's calling people um, out of this hyper-individualism into what he calls just relationalism, like being in relationship and creating thick community with each other that's not dependent on political cycles to, to fuel it. And, and he says this, there's always a balance between self and society. In some ages, the pressures of the group become stifling and crush the self, and individuals feel a desperate need to break free and express their individuality. In our age, by contrast, the self is inflated and the collective is weak. We have swung too far in the direction of individualism. The result is a loss of connection, a crisis of solidarity. We could go on and on about that. I mean, the Bible talks a lot about our self-centeredness, right? We're we're curved in on ourselves. We, we think of ourselves. We don't want to think about other people. We don't want to extend ourselves for other people. We don't want to love other people. That's part of the sin that lives inside of us, the self-centeredness that keeps us focused and preoccupied with me instead of we. Another big one um, that I think is killing us right now is idealism. Idealism about community. Again, this is where like our obsession with community almost becomes our Achilles heel. Uh, writing about this um, several generations ago, my favorite book on this, Life Together, if you haven't read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, it's a really short little book. He created a community in Nazi Germany um, because he said, I want, I want to create a thick community where this, like agape love, is stronger than hatred and injustice and violence. Right? Like, that's the whole reason he created Thinkenwald, which is this community um, and as he's kind of living that out, he says, one of the things I've noticed, one of the biggest barriers to the flourishing of this community is the idealism that people bring to community. So let me just read this to you again. It's a little long, but I, this is just money. Can't talk about community, not talk about Bonhoeffer. Every human wish dream, that's his, his word for idealism, that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions 
may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. He hates idealism. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and ultimately by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go, go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of the brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. I mean, how easy is this to do in community? This is like the first couple months or years of your marriage. This is like the first couple dates you have, right? Like you're projecting on them an ideal image. They can do no wrong. And then all of a sudden, you begin to compare them to reality. You're married a couple of years, right? Like, you're parenting kids. You're like, I just want to be a parent. And then you're like, I don't want to be a parent anymore. You know, you're, you're, you're living the reality, and it's super hard. And all of a sudden, you begin to become super critical. This is the person that shows up to your MC, your discipleship group, and they're just telling you all the things that you're not doing right. You're not this. You're not, th I mean, it's, it has a strong shaming and kind of judgmental bent to it, right? Because they have such an ideal which, again, to be fair, often comes out of wounds. We need to be compassionate for people who are critical because it comes out of deep wounds. But nonetheless, it's exhausting. And we do it so unconsciously. Like, just think about how much, you, how much time you've spent in the last couple of weeks speaking encouraging, affirming words over somebody versus how much you spent criticizing them. Now, better yet, you don't think about it because you probably don't. Ask somebody that you're close to this week. What's, what's, my, what's my, like, positive to negative ratio? That's what psychologists call it, positive to negative. They say, especially in times of trauma, we need 10 to 1, positive to negative. I bet we're probably the inverse right now, especially if you're on social media. So that's a big deal. Idealism is a big deal. It kills community. And then finally, mistrust. I think this is really the issue. At the end of the day, we just don't trust people. We've been hurt. We've experienced trauma in our families. Our families did not show up for us. They didn't keep their words. They didn't keep their promises. They hurt us. They abused us. They let us down. That even in a good family, there's disappointment, right? And, and we carry that with us. Some of you have been hurt in this church, and you've been hurt by people sitting around you, and it's hard to keep showing up in community. Because if we're honest, it's not just that we don't trust others. We really don't trust God, and we don't even trust ourselves. Do you know the root word, pistis for faith, in the New Testament, you know what that word just means? It's not, it can mean belief, but it means trust. To be in relationship with God is to allow God to reparent us and to teach us what it looks like to trust and to be loyal. Trust God, trust others, and then even trusting ourselves in the ways that we should. So all that to say, I got to wrap up because we got to go to communion. But I want to just kind of say this for this particular moment of where we're at as a community. Because this is such an important message, and I wish I had another hour to just go and unpack all of the ways that I think this can speak to us and speak life into us in this moment. I won't do that for your sake. But I do long for us to be a resilient community of commitment. And, and I think we, we are. I mean, I have seen, and I want to commend, so many acts of courageous commitment and so much devotion. Like, you guys are here. I'm not preaching this message to those who've left. Churches across the country during the last 18 months have lost 30 to 50% of their members baseline. Some have lost more than that, right? And we have experienced that here. 
So I'm not giving this sermon to those who have left, but I know that some of you have lost friends. I know that some of you have seen people leave who've been hurt by people in this community, been hurt by me or the leadership or whatever it is. I I don't know. Uh, I know it's been a hard season. And, and I know that many of you have been devoted. Many of you have been committed to each other. Many of you have shown up and served and loved. And I just want to say thank you for that. Like, thank you for hanging in. Thank you for serving. Thank you for showing up well for your brothers and sisters when it would have just been easier to leave. I mean, doing Zoom community, terrible idea, but like, it's what we had to do. But I'm talking to a person that first served this morning, the first served this morning, um, who's in their 60s, she's like, I thank God I can't get out because of my health. I thank God that people are willing to show up on Zoom and be there for me. But that's not all of our experience. We, we call devotion resilient because it's going to be tested. It got tested here in the book of Acts a couple chapters after this one. There's lying and people are killed for deceiving and not keeping their commitments in the community. That'll be a fun message. I'm glad I'm not preaching that one, Steve. Uh, Chapter six, there's ethnic discrimination uh, over the distribution of food. There's social injustice that has to be dealt with. There's more of that that comes later uh, in chapter 15. We call it resilience because it involves testing and struggle. I I just want us to make sure that we have those expectations as we come into community, especially if you're here and you're new. M. Scott Peck uh, gives uh, four stages that all communities go through. And I think these are so helpful just as, as a way to kind of name reality. Um, he says every community starts out with what he calls pseudo-community, right? This is the wish dream. This is when everything is awesome. Like, I, I, I kind of giggle and laugh uh, when people show up at someone like, this is the best church ever, and they're all smiley. And you can tell they've only been in community for like five minutes, you know? And it's like, this church is amazing. And I, I just want to be like, in the South, we say, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Like, you've not been around here long enough for you to get hurt yet. That's, that's really cute. That's adorable, you know? Uh, because in this kind of stage in pseudo-community, which is necessary, right? Like, it's like dating. You need that to kind of build the initial kindling. But like you're, you're avoiding conflict. You're not seeing the other person for who they really are. Nobody's bringing their real self. Everybody's bringing a false self. Our differences are often minimized. Um, individuality and honesty are suppressed. And we often uh, kind of relate to each other on the basis of cliches and stereotypes, not on the basis of who we really are. That then gives way inevitably to chaos, right? This is where differences begin to surface This is where disillusionment begins to creep in. Our real self is being revealed. Uh, There's unproductive fighting and conflict. Everybody's trying to fix each other. And here's the crazy thing. This is actually where most people begin to leave community. But, But here's the reality. This is when true community is actually beginning. When you get beneath the surface to the real person, then you're able to be vulnerable. That's the beginning, not the end of community. That leads to a place of emptiness, where we have to then empty ourselves. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That humility, that vulnerability of emptying myself of my ego, my needs, my agenda, my prejudices, my preferences, my need for you to be something for me that you can't be. He says that's true community. That leads to agape love. That leads to what we see here, a community that is joyful and realistic, right? Joyful without realism, without reality is just naivete, right? But we also don't want cynicism. We want a joyful, realistic community, a community of healing, a community of vulnerability. 
And this is not just like a one-time thing, right? This happens over and over and over again. So I just want to encourage you to think about your expectations. If you're new, you are going to go through this here. If you leave here and go to another church, you're going to have it happen there. If you leave the church and go somewhere else, it's going to happen to you at Soul Cycle eventually, right? Like it's going to happen. So name where you're at. Like where are you? If you're in pseudo community, just name it. Like that's where I'm at. That's great. We want you to be here and be excited. But just know chaos is coming. Maybe you're in a season of chaos. Maybe you're in that season of emptiness. I don't know where you are, but we just need to know this is, this is what happens and have the right expectations. And, and more importantly, than having the right expectations, we, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where I just want to end. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Community is hard. I, I am, if, if you don't know that, I'm going to tell you as a pastor, it's hard. We've been here in the city for 10 years. Do you know how many of our friends have left the city? I mean, we're, we've, we've gone through multiple sets of friends. We've had conflict in the church with people that we love. I'm tired. I know you're tired. Many of us have experienced a lot the last couple of years. I would never choose to do this on my own. That's why community is not a choice that we make. It's something that chooses us. It's something God chooses for us. That's why God says to Paul, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we're called into relationship with Christ Jesus, and then we're called into quantania with each other. It's a calling, not something we choose for ourselves. It's, it's a gift that we receive by grace, like our own biological families. We receive it. We don't get to choose. Look around you. Just take a quick look. Like, these are the people that God's called you into relationship with and the people that were at the other service that you may not even know. That we are called together into relationship. This is the incubator where we learn forgiveness, where we learn to be vulnerable, where we learn to love across differences, where we learn to stay when things get hard, where we learn to share money with one another, where we learn to do everything as a Christian. It happens here. And one of the ways you know how you're doing in your relationship with God is look at your relationships with other people. It's an incubator for flourishing, and it's an it's a indicator light right? You can't be in good relationship with God if you're not in good relationship with your brothers and sisters. So with that being said, we're going to go to communion. And I just want to pray over us. And I want to pray for God's spirit and God's help. Um, Because I know that different ones of us are in different seasons. Um, I know that this is really hard. And and yet, what's the alternative? I, I love the words of Peter when everybody starts to abandon Jesus, when his teaching gets really hard, everybody leaves, all the crowds disperse. And he looks at the disciples and he says, are you going to go too? And Peter, with this just glowing confession of faith, says back to Jesus, well, where else would we go, Lord? Like, what's the alternative? Isolation, to be alone by, by ourselves. We don't, like, he says, you have the words of life, so I guess we're going to stay, Jesus. And then Jesus says, boom, on this rock, on this confession, I will build my church. Wow. On just that weak little, I don't have anywhere else to go, Jesus builds his church. And that's who we are. We're a bunch of Peter saying, where else are we going to go? On this, Jesus will build this beautiful community, this beloved community. And so I know that some of you are tired. There's a really beautiful picture that I saw uh, in an art exhibit recently that I think demonstrated, if we could, could you throw that picture up there? Um, just how it feels for some of us right now. Matchsticks that are spent, burned out. This is how some of us 
emotionally feel right now? Tired. The last thing you want to do is show up at community. The last thing you want to do is be vulnerable. The last thing you feel like the energy to do is deal with difficult people. I get it. Some of you are hurt. You're carrying around pain and wounds from your families, from your churches. Those wounds need to be healed. They need to be cared for. I get it. Got those too. Some of you are new and you're just like, whoa, this is super heavy. Yeah, church is heavy. I'm sorry. Welcome to Soma. (laughs) We're glad you're here. We need some builders. We need some new people here to be the kind of people who create this kind of community. So we're glad that you're here. And some of you are like, hey man, I've been here. I've been here a while. I'm doing okay. Great. Keep doing what you're doing. We're glad that you're here too. But I just want to pray over you guys and just pray that the Holy Spirit would do this work in us again, right? That he would do this work in us as we surrender to what the Spirit's doing, that he would renew our energy. He would renew our commitment. He would renew our just hopefulness that this is even possible he would give us a fresh imagination for what it could look like in this moment. And then we're going to take communion together. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take communion. We'll pass out the elements here in just a moment. You take the cup. We'll be reminded that Jesus is with us, that he's for us. And Jesus has done what we cannot do for ourselves. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. He rose again to make this kind of life and love possible for us. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, when that comes around, you just abstain as others take the bread and the cup, just hang on to it, and then I'll lead us through here in just a minute. And so let me pray over us, and we'll take communion together. Father, we ask for your grace over our community right now. It is hard. It has been a hard season to maintain hopefulness for your church, for the community. We're tired. We're lonely. We're burned out. Some of us dealing with mental, emotional health issues. Some of us not even sure we believe and trust you, God, dealing with doubt, despair. God, I just ask for a renewed sense of energy for the Holy Spirit to fill us with his presence and power. Devote us, sanctify us to yourself. I pray for those who are tired, that you would lift up their arms as as the people came around Moses in the Old Testament and lifted up his arms. God, I pray that you by your spirit would just lift up our failing and fledgling hearts and our minds and our bodies, which are so tired, don't even want to get out of bed in the morning, certainly don't want to give ourselves to this kind of community and the work that it requires. I pray for just for peace and for rest, deep soul rest that comes from you. God, I pray for those who are discouraged, disheartened, disillusioned. God, that you would give them a patience, that you would allow them to continue to hope for what seems impossible that, God, you can bring about healing, that you are a God who raises the dead, that you're a God who brings reconciliation when things seem dead, when things seem hopeless. God, you bring hope time and time and time again. So, God, give us that vision. And I pray for those who are new, those who are excited, those who feel eager to build this kind of community, God. Would you give them the faith? Would you give them the, the patience to kind of ease their way into this community, begin to attach themselves to what's happening here And God, would you give them a vision for gathering, give them courage to call others to gather and to create these new communities. And God, we trust you for all this. We know that we can't do it on our own, so we trust you. We surrender our plans, our hopes, our desires, our longings to you, our our brokenness to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.